Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 344, Knut's Mad Lads. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Stefan, Matthew, and Amy for signing up already. In the year 1021, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us two things. A bishop died, and Thorkell the Tall was expelled from the country. And that's all it tells us. And we know by now that the Chronicle gets a little quiet whenever the establishment hits the rocks. And with Canute's right-hand man being kicked out of the kingdom, we can assume that the establishment was indeed on the rocks. But while the official record went quiet... That doesn't mean that nothing was happening. And the fact was that Canute was ruling over a vast kingdom that spanned the North Sea. And while we can't say for certain how he managed both territories at the same time during this period, we do know that he was doing it. And while we lack the detailed written record we prefer, Canute's policies and some of the things that he was doing left shadows that tell us that he was still quite active. And one set of evidence sits in London. You see, it turns out that while Canute was dealing with courtly intrigue, potential coups, backstabbing courtiers, and imposing exile on a couple key nobles, he was doing it, apparently, from London. And that's actually surprising, because London is the last place you'd expect to see King Canute comfortably exercising his particularly bloody brand of diplomacy. I mean, he was executing English nobles, and he was doing it in London the city that fought against King Canute's army repeatedly. And those conflicts between Canute and London had been so brutal that the would-be king had nearly lost it all right there. Furthermore, the bishops of London had deep ties with the House of Wessex and had been staunch supporters of both King Athelred and King Edmund Ironside. The fact was that Londoners weren't fans of Canute. And frankly, Canute wasn't a fan of London either. Shortly after taking the throne, the king had specifically required London to pay its own additional Danegeld, on top of the national one that was already demanded. And double taxation is nobody's love language. So why on earth was Canute spending so much time there? Well, despite the obvious bad blood between the new king and the city, London was still the economic center of the south, and it had been so for generations. London had a momentum of its own. And it would be foolish if Canute failed to capitalize on that. And he was no fool. So Canute had two tasks here. He needed to utilize London for its economic power, but he also needed to keep it socially and politically subdued so he could continue to exploit it. And he had a few ways to accomplish that. As you might remember, when Canute's grand conquering army sailed back to Scandinavia, following the payment of their own Danegeld, not all of them left. Some ships remained behind, staying under Canute's control, and he knew exactly what to do with them. The new king garrisoned them near the trade capital of his new and rebellious kingdom. And we aren't given a precise location for that garrison, we just know that it was near London. But it's thought that they may have been stationed at Southwark, just across the London Bridge. And doing so would have made the remainder of Canute's fearsome army a highly visible threat to anyone in London who was feeling a little rebellious. 
At the same time, we start to see evidence of a cultural shift appearing in the written and archaeological records around London. The Church of St. Olav's in Southwark was dedicated to a Scandinavian saint at around this time. We also see runic inscriptions appearing in the regional cemeteries, and their decorations start to take on a Scandinavian style. There's even a parish that was dedicated to a St. Magnus, who almost certainly was a Jarl Magnus of the Orkneys. And the most telling sign of Canute's focus on London, and the establishment of a significant Scandinavian presence there, is found in the fact that within 50 years, the administration of London would be firmly in the hands of figures of Scandinavian descent. And all of this is likely the direct result of Canute deliberately planting his flag in the city, despite the mutual antagonism between the king and the Londoners. And make no mistake about it, Canute was acting as the leader of an occupying force here. And his aggressive posture towards the city didn't stop with secular matters. As I mentioned, the bishopric of London was a hotbed of resistance to Canute's new dynasty. And London's bishopric was influential because of its enormous financial clout. Basically, the Bishop of London was rich, and that gave him a lot of power. And naturally, that power made him dangerous to Canute. But all of a sudden, we see Canute seizing a manor in Southminster, consisting of 300 hides of land. And wouldn't you know it? That manor happened to belong to the Bishop of London. Or at least, it used to. It was Canute's now. Not only that, but when you look at the assorted records from that period, including naval dues that were paid by the Bishop of London, it appears that over the course of Canute's reign, the king seized about a third of the bishopric's lands and then handed them out to the king's loyal supporters. All signs indicate that Canute was working deliberately to break the will and the economic power of the powerful Bishop of London. And he was doing it while also keeping a firm boot on the neck of the city. And that certainly would explain why he spent so much time there, and why he didn't seem to have had too many worries about operating within the walls, even going so far as carrying out political executions. And his occupation, and the aggressive and militaristic nature of it, permanently changed the landscape and culture of the region. So even though the Chronicle gets really quiet during this period of turmoil, that doesn't mean that things weren't happening. And those things were changing the cultural landscape of England. And we have no reason to believe that London was isolated in this. I suspect that, all throughout England, changes both big and small were being enacted by Canute and his followers. And interestingly, a look at Denmark reveals similar changes in culture and behavior that was happening there. When we look at archaeological evidence, and some additional evidence like place names and names and records, signs point to Canute's deliberate attempt to merge his two crowns into a single kingdom. For example, archaeological remains in Denmark, and particularly at sites of Danish elites, reveals material that is clearly of English origin. And at the same time, we have Adam of Bremen talking about how Canute was appointing English clergy to Scandinavian seas. And the archaeological evidence appears to back that up. We also see goods that were fashioned out of Scandinavian-sourced materials, but were done in English styles. And we're seeing English-style carvings that even include English names. For example, we have one carving that mentions a man named Leofwina, and there was a Leofwina who was an English moneyer who was sent to Lund during the period of Canute. And actually, the city of Lund had a number of moneyers with English names, like Godwin and Elfwin, 
and that strongly hints that Canute was sending over English moneyers to do work, in addition to English craftsmen who were also going over there and doing these carvings and stuff. We also see a sudden shift in architecture towards English styles, and we see religious buildings being dedicated to maritime saints, which is a popular move among the English, but unheard of amongst the Danish of this era. So all this evidence is suggesting that during this period, potters, moneyers, other craftsmen, as well as high-ranked figures and clergymen were moving from England to Scandinavia. And this was happening almost certainly at Canute's request and direction. And in doing this, the culture of both territories was changing. But back in England, Canute was still busy. He wasn't just trying to subjugate and break the powerful region of London. He had a whole kingdom to manage. And a look at supporting records reveals that while he was working on London, he was also trying to bolster his political flank. You see, Canute had just lost his two closest allies. He lost Eric to a botched surgery, and then he lost Thorkell to apparent treason. And that left him dangerously exposed. But he wasn't entirely alone. He did have some supporters. And one of them in particular was well-positioned to capitalize on this chaos. Godwin, son of Wolfnoth. And as you might remember, he was an English noble who had likely switched sides to Canute's cause very early on in the invasion. And he came from a family that had a pretty checkered past. But he'd been playing the game and playing it well. Because since Canute's rise to the throne, Godwin had increasingly bound his fate to this new king. And that had been incredibly profitable. He was now governing as an earl, likely over eastern Wessex. And that was an important title for a very unique reason. And it was a reason that Canute might not have fully understood at the time of his appointment. If you remember back to the early days of the House of Wessex, back when we had the Heptarchy and Wessex was a kingdom of its own, you might remember that Wessex was actually governed often as two kingdoms. And usually the western portion of the kingdom was ruled by the overking, while the eastern portion was ruled by the heir apparent. For example, Athelwolf, the father of Alfred the Great, handled the kingdom that way. But the fact was, he didn't invent that practice. It was already well established by the time he took the throne. This was a very old tradition. And that meant that Godwin didn't just get any title. He was sitting in the ancient seat of power that used to be reserved for the heir apparent. So Godwin was doing pretty well. And we're not told what was happening in court during this period. But as Canute's inner circle began to crumble, it appears that Godwin was on the rise. And it also seems that he realized that this was a chance for him to help Canute out, and by extension, help himself out. You see, Thorkel the Tall, while he'd been exiled, was still a problem. Because while he wasn't in England anymore, he was still very much alive. And not only that, now he was in Canute's other kingdom, Denmark. The threat that he posed would have been obvious to anyone. So the king needed to ensure that the Danish nobles who were operating there would see their futures as tied to his success and not in any rebellion that Thorkel the Tall might be building. And to do that, these nobles would need to see Denmark's future as tied to England's future. And as we spoke about last episode, one of the most powerful figures in Denmark during this period was Jarl Ulf. And Jarl Ulf and Knut were already close. In fact, the Jarl was bound to Knut through marriage to his sister. Furthermore, 
Ulf's brother, Eglaf, had been given lands and titles in England, just to be safe. But it seems that as Canute and Thorkell were on the edge of war, the king started to get a bit anxious about his brother-in-law, and possibly for good reason, because something had happened that was significant enough to cause Jarl Ulf to come to England to meet with Canute. Unfortunately, we're not told what inspired the meeting, nor who requested it. We also aren't told what they discussed or what happened. But all of a sudden, following this meeting, we learn that Canute arranged a marriage. He would marry Godwin, his close English confidant, to Jarl Ulf's sister, Githa. So here we have another familial bond that was being established between the powerful Danish dynasty and Canute's base of power in England. And it's hard to see that as anything less than an attempt to secure his political flank by further binding Ulf to England, and to Canute personally. But Canute and Ulf weren't the only figures who were benefiting from this. Godwin had just rocketed up into the upper echelons of Anglo-Danish politics. Thanks to the complex knot of political marriages that Canute was creating in order to bind the two kingdoms together. Godwin, through this marriage, had managed to get himself linked to the Danish royal family. I don't know, guys. You can call me crazy, but I feel like this Godwin guy is going places. And Canute's political wrangling wasn't done yet. There was also something odd that happened during the festival of St. Athelthrith. Now, if you remember all the way back to the 7th century, Athelthrith was the East Anglian princess who was married to King Egfrith of Northumbria, the son of King Oswiu. But she wasn't all that hot on the marriage, and so she soon asked to become a nun, and King Egfrith allowed it. Because really, if your wife is so unhappy that she'd rather be a nun, are you going to fight to keep that thing going? Well, after she did that, she ended up going back to East Anglia and founding Eli Abbey. And that was a pretty big deal. And so now, centuries after her death, she was revered as a saint, and she was a pretty big deal in East Anglia. And that's important because we're told that during her festival on June 23rd of 1022, Canute gave a significant chunk of lands to the abbot of Eli. And considering the location and the nature of the day, there's a good chance that Canute gave this gift as a part of a ceremony during the Saint Day celebrations. It was probably a really big deal. Also, at around the same time, Canute granted lands in Norfolk to the abbey of St. Bennet of Holm. And it's quite likely that at around this point, Canute's wife and partner, Queen Emma, was placed in charge of eight and a half hundreds of land in West Suffolk. And all these things have one thread in common. Did he catch what it is? All the activity was taking place not in Wessex, where Canute had previously restricted his activity, but instead in East Anglia. And given how Canute had ruled up to this point, that's surprising because he generally kept to his own lands. But there is a clue behind this change in policy. East Anglia had only recently been under the control of the exiled rebel, Thorkel the Tall. And that fact could also explain why we see sporadic evidence of Canute placing his men in the region. The Ramsey Chronicle says that he seized lands from some Englishmen as well as from Thorkel during this period, and then gave them to his own, quote, comrades in arms, end quote. So all of this activity might have been the aftermath of a rebellion. And what Canute may have been doing here is currying favor with the region's power brokers, 
while also installing his own men in the rebels' seized lands in order to keep an eye on any who might remain loyal to Thorkell. So there is a lot going on during this period. But as far as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is concerned, there was nothing to see here. The only thing that mattered was that Thorkell left and a bishop died. And then on the following year, the archbishop went to Rome, had a kick-ass party with the Pope, and he got a new swank set of duds. And as for Canute, we aren't told anything about those marriages, land deals, or the heavy trans-North Sea politicking. Nothing. Instead, the Chronicle just has one more thing to add. Quote, 1022. This year went King Canute out with his ships to the Isle of Wight. End quote. Oh, that's nice. And it sure would be nice to have some details. Because honestly, we can't say for certain why he was there. I mean, for all the scribes are telling us, he might have just surprised his navy with an all-expense-paid holiday to Shanklin Beach. We don't know. I mean, I doubt it, but maybe. Now, some have posited that this move to White was in preparation for hostilities against Normandy. However, there is no evidence of a rift between England and Normandy at this point. Rather, thanks to the political marriage, things appear to have been rather stable at this point. Furthermore, there's no recorded evidence of any hostilities between the two peoples during this point. So I think it's highly unlikely. There's also the possibility that the ships went to White to deal with pirates. And that wouldn't be the first nor the last time that the southern coast of England had a problem with pirates. And positioning a fleet there would allow it to quickly respond to southern threats. There's also the fact that the Isle of Wight wasn't just known for narrow, slightly rocky beaches. It was also a convenient and regularly used base of operations for invading Viking fleets. And considering that Thorkell was in Scandinavia and Canute was making Herculean efforts at protecting his flank, likely in anticipation of a future rebellion, I wouldn't be surprised if he wanted to position his fleet in a way to protect his lands from another Viking conquest. But there is a small problem with that theory. If Canute wanted to halt a fleet of northern raiders, why would he go to the Isle of Wight? That's really far to the south. And if the raiders ported anywhere farther to the north, as Canute himself had done, well, that would render the fleet at White completely useless. And if Canute really wanted to keep an eye on Thorkell and stop an invasion, Sandwich would have made a lot more sense. So what does this entry mean? Well, there is another possible explanation for this. Canute might not have been going to the Isle of Wight at all. You see, the trouble here is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle wasn't written in modern English. I know I read it to you in that way, but that's just a translation. And many translations assume the scribe was speaking about the Isle of Wight, because the Chronicle regularly described the Isle of Wight as Wit or Whitland. And in this case, the scribe said Whitland. But here's the trouble. The English were also aware of a place that was called Whitland on the southern shores of the Baltic. And if the scribes were talking about that Whitland, that means that Canute and his fleet might not have been anywhere near England in the last half of 1022. And instead, they might have been operating far to the north. But on the other hand, why would the English scribes be so specific about where Canute went in the Baltic? That's something that's honestly a bit out of character and hard to understand. But then again, we do have other entries that indicate that Canute did go north with a fleet. The life of King Edward states that in 1022 or 1023, shortly after Thorkell was exiled, 
Knut, as well as his close confidant Godwin, went on a military expedition into Denmark. And we also have another source that explains why they might have been doing that. We're told that in Denmark, there were, quote, unbridled men putting off Canute's authority from their necks, end quote, and how they had, quote, prepared to rebel, end quote. Furthermore, the Chronicle states in the following year of 1023, quote, this year, King Canute returned to England, end quote. So obviously he had gone somewhere. Furthermore, the Chronicle adds to that same year that Canute had returned to England as, quote, Thorkell and he were reconciled, end quote. So let's look at all this together. We have the Chronicle being terse and reading like a religious version of People magazine. And it's known for doing that in times when the establishment is struggling. We also know that Canute was gone for part of 1022 and 1023. And we have sources that say that he went into Denmark during that period with Godwin on a military campaign. And we know that there was a conflict with Thorkell that continued beyond the banishment. Finally, we know that Canute had returned to England once the conflict with Thorkell was over. So putting it all together, it seems that 1021 and 1022 were years where Canute was desperately fighting off a rebellion led by Thorkell the Tall, first in England and then in Scandinavia. And the matter wasn't completely settled until 1023. As for how it was resolved, the Chronicle has one last comment. Quote, He committed Denmark and his son to the care of Thorkell, whilst he took Thorkell's son with him to England. End quote. So Thorkell would now govern Denmark, and he would hold Canute's son as his ward, or more likely, his hostage. And Canute, in turn, would hold Thorkell's son. This is how wars are ended. This was a rebellion. It had to have been. And the Chronicle is putting its best spin on it. But it seems pretty clear that Canute was unable to overcome a rebellion by his own subordinate. And that suggests that he was really struggling in the early 1020s. Now, we aren't told specifically which sons were exchanged. But it's possible that Hartha Canute was left behind in Denmark. He was the son of Canute and Emma, and he would have been about five years old at this point, which I have to imagine was pretty hard on him. But we can't say for certain what happened here, because the record is so dark and vague during this period. For example, we don't know what happened with Thorkell and Denmark following this event. All we know is that something obviously must have happened, because Thorkell suddenly vanishes, never to be heard from again. And the only clue we have left is in a life of a saint written long after the fact. And as you know by now, the lives of saints aren't exactly the most rigorous of documents. But, since the Chronicle and other contemporary records aren't talking about it, the Vita Sancti Alvecchi is the best we've got here. And it claims that Thorkell was chased down and killed by an angry mob. Which is a pretty dramatic story, and also not impossible. Such things did happen to Scandinavian rulers. But unfortunately, we can't say for sure. We just know that Thorkell vanishes. And later on in the 1020s, we'll see Jarl Ulf, Knut's powerful brother-in-law, in a position of power in Denmark. And if Ulf was behind that angry mob, or just exploited it so he could supplant Thorkell, that actually would have been a boon for Knut, as their two dynasties were already closely linked. But again, unfortunately, we don't know what actually happened. All we can say is that something happened. 
and that the scribes aren't telling us what it was. Meanwhile, in England, things were moving quickly. Earl Godwin, who some sources claim traveled with Canute to do whatever it was he was doing in Scandinavia, well, upon Canute and his return to England, we see Godwin witnessing charters as the Earl of Wessex. Not the Earl of Eastern Wessex, or the Earl of Kent, or some smaller section. Godwin was now the Earl of the entire territory that previously Canute had reserved for himself. The same territory that was the ancient seat of power for the dynasty that Canute had just supplanted. That territory, Wessex, was now solely in Godwin's hands. Apparently, Canute was moving away from his strategy of delegation and was beginning to rule more as a traditional king, which, given how things went with Thorkell, is entirely understandable. But speaking of Thorkell, now that he was gone, Canute needed a new second in command. And on that same year, we see Godwin acting as a ducks et bailus of, quote, almost all the kingdom, end quote. And that title sounds strange, and it's even stranger to spell out but it basically breaks down to the chief governor of all of England. So, Godwin was now basically Canute's second in command. Not bad for the son of a pirate. But that wasn't the only thing that Canute was dealing with now that he was back in England. There was also the issue of St. Elphea. Do you remember St. Elphea? He was the Archbishop of Canterbury who wouldn't back down when he was captured by the Yom's Vikings and he was later executed by their army outside of the walls of the city of London. And according to legend, it was the brutality of that event that led to Thorkell the Tall leaving their company and joining the English for a while. Well, posthumously, he was turned into a rather popular local saint, and his remains were being kept at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which meant that they were under the control of the Bishop of London. And the fact was that this was over a thousand years before Disneyland broke ground. So options for entertainment were pretty thin at this point. So in lieu of Space Mountain, many 11th century Brits would instead head down to St. Paul's and visit the shrine of Elfhea. But just like Disneyland, you couldn't just stroll in. There was a door charge. And as a consequence, Elfhea's corpse was a huge moneymaker for the Bishop of London which, as we talked about earlier in the episode, likely did not sit all that well with Canute, considering how much bad blood there was between those two. Furthermore, simply the presence of Elfhea was really awkward for Canute. That saint, and the cult that had grown around him, was a constant reminder of how the Scandinavians, Canute's people, had killed a beloved figure of the people that he was now trying to rule, and they had done so in an extremely theatrical and vicious manner. So the fact that there were large numbers of people willing to visit London, a former rebel stronghold, and hand over their hard-earned money to commemorate that event, well, that was not a good thing for Canute. So, upon his return to England, Canute began to build a team. First, he'd need the Archbishop of Canterbury. Archbishop Athelnoth was the highest-ranked figure in the church, and he'd need that cover. Thankfully, Canute was already close with Archbishop Athelnoth, as he had installed him in the sea. So Athelnoth was in the bag. Second, he'd need muscle. And as a former Viking warlord, he had no shortage of that. So Canute gathered some of his closest companions, his huskarls, and he readied them for action. Third, he'd need protection for himself. 
so he gathered a small group of personal retainers. They were no doubt men who would be good in a fight, but I'm sure Canute also selected them because they'd be able to think on their feet, move quietly, and remain unseen. And finally, he needed a getaway vehicle, and he had just the thing in mind. With all the pieces in play, they moved. The Huskarls launched an attack on the gates of London, loudly, which drew the defenders of the city and the bishopric out into the open and focused their full attention on a single spot. Meanwhile, King Canute, Archbishop Athelnoth, and their small personal band snuck inside St. Paul's Cathedral. When they reached the tomb of St. Elphea, they found it sealed. So thinking quickly, they grabbed a candelabrum, which is basically just a big candlestick, and they pried it open. Once inside, they gathered up the saint's remains, fled the building, and boarded the fully armed longship that was waiting for them just outside the city walls. Canute then took the helm and steered the ship as close to the southern bank as he dared in order to avoid any attacks from the enraged inhabitants of London, who were now aware of what just happened. And before long, the city was behind them, and they escaped with their booty. That's the story, as is told in the Sancti Alvegi. And in the chronicle of that same year, we're told that Canute interred Elfheo's remains at Christchurch in Canterbury, with a large celebration marking the event. I don't know if the Bishop of London was invited. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join any of our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>